All right, I want to welcome you to Grace Community Church this morning. And if you're looking at me and saying, who is this guy standing in front of you? It's been several months since I preached God's Word to this church, and I'm thankful to have had an opportunity to do some studies over the summer, and I'm most thankful to be standing here today and preaching God's Word to brothers and sisters that I love. we got a lot to cover today. We're going to be in Acts 16. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. And I'm going to pray that God will bless our time in His Word today. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to You today in the name of Jesus. And Lord, it's a wonderful thing. Just what we sung to You, God, that You really do say that none can ascend the hill of the Lord and none can stand in the holy place except the ones who have clean hands and a pure heart. And Lord, we confess to you that that is not us apart from Christ. It's a wonderful gift that you've given us, God, that we can stand through the work of Jesus. We can stand spotless and blameless before your holy throne. And so, Lord, we come today, God, with deep gratitude and we want to bless your name for salvation from sin. God, we want to thank you, Lord, for casting all of our sins upon Christ and granting all of his righteousness to us. Lord, and we want to come to you today as your children. And we want to confess to you that in spite of everything that you have done for us, Lord, we have not arrived. We have not arrived, Lord. We are not perfected, God, and you command us to press on, to press forward. And that's our desire today, to press on to know you, to reach forward to the high call of God in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we ask for your help today. We ask for you to draw near to us today by the power of your Holy Spirit and that you would make these words effective in our life, Lord, and that you would use them to build us up and to make us strong. Father, we thank you that you're a good father. And week by week, Lord, we can gather together and we can ask you to feed us, Lord, from your word. And you're not the kind of father, Lord, that we ask of you bread and you give us a snake. You're a good father. And so we pray that you would encourage us today. That you would speak to us today from your word, that you would give us real spiritual nourishment. Strengthen us in our inner man, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to read our text together. Many times you have been told that this is the most important words that you will hear over the next hour is the text that we're about to read together. This is the only thing that you will hear me say. That is God-breathed, inerrant, without error. This is the Word of God. And this is His Word specifically to Grace Community Church this morning. We'll be in Acts 16, and we'll, be, we'll begin reading in verse 6. It says this, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. 
So passing by Masia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Verse 11. So, setting sail for Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Again, this is God's word to Grace Community Church today. Now, we got a lot of ground to cover in a little amount of time. And so I want to jump right in and I want to I want to grab a hold of a phrase in verse seven. And I want to use that phrase as an extended introduction to this passage and really as an overview of the Holy Spirit. And that phrase is found in verse seven. Four words. Those four words are this. The spirit of Jesus. The spirit of Jesus. And as we begin today, I want I want to provoke all of us to think about uh, specifically what's communicated to us in those words. And I'll get us started in this way. Okay, that phrase on the face of that phrase, the spirit of Jesus, it seems to on the face of that phrase contradict what we know as the orthodox formulation of the Trinity, the triune God, one God in three persons, triunity, three persons, one God. And on the face of it, that phrase, what it seems to do is it seems to take the second person of the Trinity and the third person of the Trinity, and it seems to conflate those persons together and it could possibly leave us with a level of confusion. Wait a second. Uh, the spirit of Jesus. Are we talking about Jesus or are we talking about the Holy Spirit? And so I want us to think about this as we press into this passage this morning, because it's really hard. OK, really difficult to find more foundational Christian knowledge than a, a true, solid knowledge of the Trinity, the triune God. This is really important that we understand what's being communicated by this phrase. And as we look back through the history of the church, we can identify many Christian heresies 
that have come into being by, by breaking and doing away with the historic doctrine of the Trinity. And those heresies can really be categorized under two headings. One, is, one, one can be referred to as Unitarian theology. goes back to the earliest centuries of the church. Unitarians strip Jesus Christ of his deity. Says that Jesus is something lesser than God the Father. Also strips the Holy Spirit of his deity. This is one way the doctrine of the Trinity has historically been rejected. Another way is through what we could call oneness theology. Very popular in Pentecostal circles in America. And oneness theology rejects the doctrine of the Trinity in this way. And that they say that God was the Father... God became the Son, and then God became the Holy Spirit. And I want to ask us, is that the kinds of things that were supposed to be taken away from a phrase like this? The Spirit of Jesus. Is our takeaway supposed to be that Jesus is now the Holy Spirit? Is our takeaway supposed to be that the second person and the third person of the Trinity are no longer distinct? And so keep your thinking hats on for just a second because I promise we're going somewhere with this. This phrase is one area where a little knowledge of the original languages of Scripture help us to guard the Gospel. It helps us to protect the Gospel. And what I mean by that is that phrase is placed in what is called the genitive construction in the Greek language. And that's just a long way of explaining to us that this is the case of possession in Greek. If you want to communicate that you own something, that you possess something, this is how you do it. This is how you word it. And so that phrase, the spirit of Jesus, it's not communicating to us any kind of confusion between the second person of the Trinity and the third person of the Trinity. It's actually a glorious phrase that's communicating to us the relationship that the Holy Spirit has to the ascended Jesus. And if you've never thought about this before, this will blow your mind. This will blow your mind. The way the New Testament describes how the Spirit relates to Jesus Christ. Now, we need to say this before we press forward. We know, we know that the three persons of the Godhead are absolutely equal in power, in authority, and in deity. From all eternity, they're absolutely equal. We know that. That is the foundation of the doctrine of the Trinity. And yet we are told plainly in God's Word that each person of the Godhead has taken on distinct roles as it relates to our redemption. For example, it is wrong to say that the Father died on the cross for your sins or that the Spirit was resurrected from the dead. That is the distinct role of the Son of God as it relates to the plan of salvation. And this phrase tells us that the distinct role of the Spirit of God in redemption is to belong to Jesus, to be possessed by Jesus. Or you could even say it this way, that as it relates to our redemption, the Holy Spirit 
is Jesus's possession. It's his endowment. It belongs to him. The third person of the Trinity has been given to our great mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of Jesus. So I, I want us to think about this morning, the relationship that Jesus Christ has with the Holy Spirit. And let's start at the very beginning of his incarnation. We'll remind ourselves that at the very beginning of his incarnation, the eternal son of God was conceived. A human nature was added to God, the son in the womb of Mary. And guess, guess how? By the Holy Spirit, the power of the most high overshadowed Mary and in her womb. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That was the very beginning of his incarnation. And then we move further along in the Gospels and we find that at the very beginning of the messianic earthly ministry of Jesus, he was baptized. And we're told in, 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 each, in each synoptic gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that in each one of those, upon Jesus being baptized, the Bible tells us that the sky was ripped open. That's exactly what Mark says. That God tore the sky open and the third person of the Trinity came down in bodily form like a dove and rested upon Jesus Christ. He was anointed with the Spirit, even though he was full of the Spirit from the moment he was conceived. He was anointed at his baptism with the Spirit in a way that he hadn't been Previously, he was endowed with the spirit. And the Bible goes on to tell us that as Jesus is resurrected from the dead and enters into this new stage of glory, glorified humanity, as he comes out of the tomb, out of humiliation and into eternal glory, that Christ, the mediator, Jesus, was endowed with a new endowment of the Holy Spirit. Spirit And the Bible teaches us that at that moment, our great mediator, the God man, ascended to the right hand of God, was given control of the third person of the Trinity. This was the gift of his father given to the mediator in, in response to his perfect obedience in our place. Let me prove that to you from the scriptures. If you have your Bibles, take a, a hard uh, left turn this morning to Psalm chapter uh, Psalm forty-five. Psalm forty-five. And we're going to read verse seven together. Now, before we read this, you need to know that the writer of Hebrews quotes this exact text and applies it directly to Jesus Christ in Hebrews chapter one. So we're about to read Psalm 45, Old Testament, but we're about to read words that are directly applied to Jesus. Let's read it together. Psalm 45, verse 7. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. That's a beautiful description of Jesus Christ, that he is sinless. That he is perfect. And not only does the Bible say that he always did what was right. 
and he all and he never did what was wrong. The Bible goes further than that and shows us that the affections of Jesus were absolutely holy. He loved what God loved and he hated what God hated. He was perfectly obedient, spotless righteousness. And then the Bible says, therefore, therefore, because that's who you are, Jesus, spotlessly righteous. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. In response to the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ, the Father gave him a gift, and that gift was the anointing. He was given the Holy Spirit without measure. Given absolute authority. The way he, Jesus says this in Matthew 28 is all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He really claims this. And brothers and sisters, how can we know that our great mediator has received such authority from God the Father? Listen to this text in Acts chapter 2 verse 33. It says this, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So I want you to catch that move. The Word of God says Jesus received that gift as a response to His perfect obedience and then He dumps it out. He pours it out. He drenches His church in the third person of the Trinity. He pours out on the day of Pentecost the gift that he has received from the Father. And so I want us to back up and I want us to see two things about this phrase, the Spirit of Jesus. And the first thing I want us to back up and consider is that phrase, it greatly exalts Jesus Christ. It greatly exalts Jesus Christ. It's the Spirit of Jesus. And the Word of God makes sure that we're thinking about a man, Jesus, Nazareth, human being, mediator, last Adam, man, a real human being, glorified. The Spirit has been given to Him as a gift. And then He has received authority from the Father, listen closely, to distribute the third person of the Trinity at will. A man, our great mediator, has received authority to distribute the third person of the Trinity at will. And we remember this is exactly what John the Baptist promised us. This is exactly what John the Baptist prophesied. He looked out to all the crowds and John the Baptist says this. He says, I'm baptizing you with water. But over and over again, we see him turn the corner. He says, but there's one coming. There's a man coming. There's a messenger coming. And he is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's going to pour out the third person of the Trinity. He's going he's gonna to give the downpour of the Holy Spirit. Now, is that not an amazing thing? Is that not a mind-blowing thing? That a man, a human being, yes, sinless, 
But with a real human nature, would ever even dream of receiving that much authority? Is that not mind-blowing to us? And it blew John the Baptist's mind too because he said in response to a man like that, a man who would come and distribute the Holy Spirit, he says, I'm not even worth getting down on my knees and untying a man's sandals that can do that. That can pour out the Holy Spirit. There is none like Jesus. There is none like Him. He is highly exalted. He is given the name that is above every name. And so this phrase, there's glory coming off of this phrase. There's glory bound up in this phrase. Spirit of Jesus. The Spirit that belongs to Jesus. Our great mediator. The second thing I want us to consider this morning is that phrase, the Spirit of Jesus, not only does it greatly glorify Christ, it also provides tremendous clarity for us as to the role and the mission of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. The Spirit that belongs to Jesus. He is completely given over to magnifying and glorifying Jesus. And almost every mistake that is made with hypercharismania and, 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 and Holy Spirit uh, 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 charis- charismaniac doctrine, almost every one of these mistakes can be traced back right here. Of not coming square in the face that the Spirit of God exists to magnify Christ. His role in the plan of redemption is to cast the spotlight not on himself. The spirit of God's role, contrary to popular belief, his role is not to make things as weird as they could possibly be. That's not what the Holy Spirit is about. That's not his mission to be really weird and nobody understands anything that's going on. And as long as that ha- that's happening, we must be filled with the spirit. The spirit must be moving. That is not his role. He has willingly entered into a role where he casts that spotlight and that floodlight not upon himself, but upon Jesus. He is the spirit that exalts Christ. Spirit of Jesus. Spirit that belongs to Jesus. This is what Jesus says in John 16 verse 13 about the mission of the Holy Spirit. And we need to learn this well. He says this, when the spirit of truth comes, Jesus says this, he will not speak on his own authority. And brothers and sisters, I want want you to think how amazing it is that any person of the Trinity, any member of the Godhead would not speak on their own authority. That's an amazing thing. He has equal authority with Father and with Son. He's just as God as the Father is God. And Jesus says, yeah, but when He comes, He's not going to speak on His own authority. That's mind-blowing. But the next step is even more amazing. Not only will the third person of the Trinity, when He comes, not speak on His own authority. Jesus says this in John chapter 15, verse 26. He will bear witness about me. Now think about that. A man said those words. 
a man, real human body, a sinless man with a pulse, with a personality. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a mere spirit. A man stood before his disciples and he said, the third person of the Trinity is coming. And when he gets here, he's not going to speak on his own authority. He's going to bear witness to me. That's how Christ-centered the Holy Spirit is. He has refused to speak on His own authority. And He cast the spotlight upon the Son of God. And this is extremely helpful to us as we seek to know God the Holy Spirit. To walk with God the Holy Spirit. And listen, this relationship that the Holy Spirit has with Jesus. It, he's so bound up to glorifying Jesus that as far as you can imagine into eternity, millions of years, endless ages, there will never be a moment going forward where He is not known as the Spirit of Jesus. The Spirit that magnifies Jesus. The Spirit that bears witness to Jesus. It's absolutely mind-blowing that God would give such authority to our great mediator, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of Jesus. Now let me say this before we dive into our text. We know if we look around long enough, we know that there is almost an endless amount of false doctrine as it relates to the Holy Spirit in our culture. There, there's all kind of nonsense that has been attached to the Spirit's name in our culture. And I want to remind us in the midst of that false doctrine about the Holy Spirit, I want to remind us as disciples of Jesus, our job and our role is not to be reaction Christians. Okay? God has called us to do more than look out on the culture and just react to everything that everybody's doing wrong. And you can certainly do that. Especially in this area. You can line up hundreds of things. You know, they say this, but the Bible says this. They say this, but the Bible says this. And you can be an expert in everything that other people do wrong. And that's a reaction, Christian. And I want to remind us that God has called us to something more. And I want to remind every disciple of Jesus in the room. You have been called into Trinitarian salvation. Trinitarian salvation. This is what you possess. Communion with the triune God. And part of what that means, brothers and sisters, is that you have a growing personal relationship with God, the Holy Spirit. Not just that you look out and know what everybody else is doing wrong, but that you know Him. That you press on to know Him. That you grow in the Spirit. The Scriptures tell us not to grieve the Spirit of God. The Scriptures tell us to be led by the Holy Spirit. Personal, daily interaction. The Scriptures command us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. To worship in the Spirit. To pray in the Spirit. And every single one of us should be longing. Absolutely filled with longing. To walk in the fullness of what Jesus has provided for us. Our great mediator has given us the Spirit. He's baptized us in the Holy Spirit. And every single one of us ought to be marked by a longing to walk 
more and more, deeper and deeper, further and further into the ministry, into the fullness of the work of the Spirit that glorifies Jesus. Now, Acts 16, extended introduction. How does, how does Acts 16 help us as we think about pressing in, growing in the Holy Spirit? Acts 16 helps us by giving us a very specific reminder. And one of the ways that the Spirit is misunderstood is it's unhitched from Christ. Another way is that the Spirit is misunderstood is that it's unhitched. He is unhitched from holiness. And then, then this, is, this is most helpful for us that quite often the Spirit is misunderstood in that He is unhitched from mission, from the Great Commission. And that's exactly the reminder that Acts 16 gives us, that as we walk closer and closer, as we walk in the fullness of the Spirit, in the fullness of what Jesus has provided us, one of the things that we can always expect is to be pressed further and further into obedience to the Great Commission. This is what Acts reminds us of. We have a thesis at the very beginning of this book, Acts 1-8. And we're reminded that a major reason that God has given you the third person of the Trinity as a guarantee, as a possession, as an indwelling. A major reason is for you to make disciples. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. And so it's so easy to get sidetracked into all these weird things. The Spirit of God wants to do all these weird things. And we're told over and over again, the Spirit of God wants to make you a disciple maker. Spirit of God wants to make you an evangelist. The Spirit of God wants to make you a fisher of men. A, a man or a woman who, who opens their mouth and declares the mighty work that God has done in Jesus Christ. And so it shouldn't succumb, come to us as any surprise in, in verse 10 of Acts 16. That we see the Spirit of Jesus. The spirit that loves to exalt Jesus, what does he do? He leads a mission team on the second missionary journey to unreached people groups. And he does that through a vision that he gives. And he calls them in to this unreached area of Macedonia. This is what the spirit of God does. He comes upon us. He fills us and he compels us to preach Jesus Christ, especially among those who have not heard. He's a missionary spirit. One of the things that we agree upon to each other at Grace Community Church in our church covenant is we say we will not live a civilian life. We want to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. And we need to be reminded that the Holy Spirit, he's not a civilian spirit. He's a missionary spirit. He's pressing that gospel to people who have not heard. He's applying the work of Christ among the nations. He's a missionary spirit. And so what that means for us is that if we're filled with the spirit, one of the things that that's always going to mean, 
always is that we're going to be filled with this compulsion to make Jesus known. To make Christ known. To preach the gospel. We're going to be filled with ambition. Filled with compulsion. And even filled with power to preach Christ. This is the same compulsion that we saw in the ministry of Jesus. Listen to this in Mark chapter 1 verse 38. Jesus said this. He said to his disciples. Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And so one of the things that we need to know about Jesus is he's not content just to hang out with Christians all the time. People that know the gospel, that have the gospel. There's something deeply ingrained in his mission where he says, listen, I came out so that other towns could hear. I must preach to them. That's the heart of Christ. The Spirit of God produces that same heart in us. And we see that laid out specifically in the life of the Apostle Paul. Listen to this text in Romans 15, verse 20. He says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, Lest I build on someone else's foundation. For as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see. Those who have never heard will understand. You catch that? The same heart of Jesus is being produced in the Apostle Paul. I must tell people that have not heard. And the Spirit of God is continually doing that same thing in the book of Acts. Sending out missionaries to those who have not heard. Jumping out of the book of Acts and all throughout church history. Spirit of God is at the same, he's at the same work of compelling people to go to people that have not heard. This is one of the things that it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. To walk in the fullness of the Spirit. Is that you have this ambition to preach Jesus. Not just to Christians but to those who do not know him. Those who do not know Him. And I want you to think about this this morning. Every single one of us have a desire to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If we're true believers and we belong to Jesus Christ, that's good news to us and we want that. And one of the things that we need to be aware of is that these connections between the Holy Spirit and His fullness and the Great Commission, they're so strong that I do not believe that God is going to answer our prayers to be filled with the Holy Spirit unless we have the intention of using this power and this compulsion to preach Jesus Christ. He won't answer us. This is why He's given us the Spirit. You will receive power to be my witnesses. And so we need to learn this well, that missionary impulse of the Spirit-filled life. And when we ask to be filled with the Spirit of God, one of the things that you're asking to, to be filled with is a, is a boldness and a compulsion to preach Jesus Christ. Preach Christ. He's a missionary spirit. Now, there's something really strange that happens in this text. And I, I don't know if you caught it as, as we read this together at the very beginning. But the first thing that we see this missionary spirit do in this text is we see him forbid the word 
being preached twice. They tried this missionary team. They go to strengthen these local churches. Second missionary journey. They get to the end of the line. And their immediate impulse is, I'm going to Asia. They're standing at the border of Asia. Asia doesn't have the gospel going to Asia. And they try to take that step. And the Spirit of Jesus stops them. They're forbidden by the Holy Spirit to do that. Now that's a strange thing. We don't know how that happened. We don't know if the Holy Spirit gave them a prophetic word. We don't know if the Holy Spirit prevented them by circumstance. But we do know that they were forbidden by the Spirit to go into Asia. Now... What, what do these men do? Would they just turn the corner and go to the next nearest territory, Bithynia? And Bithynia doesn't have the gospel, and we have the compulsion and the ambition to make Jesus known. And again, the Spirit of Jesus stops them from preaching the gospel in Bithynia. And God gives this missionary team a vision in, in verse 10. And you have this man calling to them from Macedonia, come over to Macedonia. And help us. And so in a very real sense. The Holy Spirit. Has this mission team. Walk right through. Two unreached regions. Passes right through Asia Minor. Passes right through Bithynia. To go to Macedonia. To another unreached people group. To preach Jesus Christ. Now. Both of these regions. That the Spirit uh, stopped the work. Both of them were really good options. And that's what adds to the strangeness of what we see here. Asia Minor has major influential cities. Um, uh, the biggest of which is Ephesus, which we read about several times in the New Testament. They don't have the gospel. They have a lot of people there who are dead in their sins. The opportunity is there for them to go, but the Spirit stops them. Same with Bithynia. Bithynia has this massive city. Modern day Istanbul used to be called Chalcedon, Constantinople, standing right there. They're on the very border. They don't have the gospel. Lots of people are dead in their sins. They're ambassadors of Jesus Christ and they want to go into Bithynia. Spirit of Jesus says no. Go to Macedonia instead. Now, what can we possibly learn from that? What can we possibly learn from that? Let me say this, that when God stopped that mission team... This wasn't a no forever. Both of these areas eventually received the gospel. In fact, Asia Minor had the gospel before the second missionary journey even ended. So this is not a no forever, but this is, I mean, it's just right here. A tempor Temporarily, they were forbidden to go into these regions, and another region was preferred. One of the things that we can take away from this is a reminder that God is sovereign. And you need to know that. And the depths of, of who you are as a disciple of Christ. Not only is God sovereign over who responds to the gospel. God is sovereign over who actually hears the gospel. And when they actually hear it. He is that sovereign over the mission. He is the Lord of the harvest. He's our sovereign God. And He's so sovereign that He has the ability to redirect mission teams wherever He wants to direct them. Through extraordinary guidance. Extraordinary guidance. You can be a faithful missionary, a fruitful missionary, and never receive any of this guidance that we see in Acts 16. But you need to know that if you are taking a wrong step, that your God is able to get your attention. He's able to redirect you. He's able 
to ensure that His mission proceeds just as He has planned. And in fact, through church history, we see many, many missionaries, famous missionaries, redirected by the Holy Spirit on the mission field. I'll give you just three examples. David Livingston, famous missionary, set out to China, planned towards China, praying towards China. God planted him in Africa. Redirected by the Spirit of Jesus. One of the things that we mentioned earlier is that the Spirit of God calls you to a work more than to a place. And that's really important, right? Because if you're standing on the border of an unreached people group and circumstances or whatever are preventing you from going into that people group, does that mean you're not called anymore? You're not called to work for Christ, preach Christ, make disciples? No, that's not what that means. It means you're called to do it somewhere else. And that's exactly what we see. The Spirit of God redirecting this mission team. William Carey, famous missionary to India, he originally planned to go to Polynesia, pray towards Polynesia, prepare towards Polynesia. God sent him to India. And we, we refer to him now as the father of modern missions. Adoniram Judson and his wife planted by God in India and then ran out of India by circumstances. Oh, they must go home. God, you know, not call them anymore. No. Spirit of God redirects them and a gospel door opens up in Burma and they labor faithfully for Jesus. God has led many, many disciples in this in a very similar way that we see here. And one of the things that we need to learn from this is that we, to, in order for us to be guided by and led by and sensitive to the Holy Spirit, one of the things that that means is that there might come times in your life where things don't make rational sense in order for you to fall, follow the leading of the Spirit. You may be called to give up really good missionary opportunities like open doors to unreached people groups in order to pursue better mission, ministry opportunities that the Spirit is leading you to. We need to be sensitive. We need to plan strategically. We need to aim to finish and be faithful to the Great Commission. But we need to be sensitive to the Spirit of God. And again, all throughout church history, we see famous missionaries sensitive to God's Holy Spirit, led by God's Holy Spirit. Last thing I want to point out before we jump into the story about Lydia is in verse 10, in this vision, this man from Macedonia, he says, come and help us. Come and help us. Now, I want you to think about that. Think about it in an earthly sense. If, you know, somebody's drowning and they're crying out, come and help me. Or you're a medical professional and somebody's saying, help me. You know exactly what they're asking for. A drowning man is asking, please pull me out of this water. Help me. A man dying of cancer is looking at a doctor and he's saying, help me. Please help me. And I want you to consider, what is this man? In this vision, what is he asking for? What kind of help is he asking for? And I want us to notice that this missionary team, they got together and they came to a conclusion that God was telling them something in this vision. And what we're told in verse 10 is they concluded in response to come and help me that God had called them 
to preach the gospel to the Macedonians. And I want to use that really simple scenario as a reminder to us that giving people real help is giving people the word of God, the good news of Jesus, the gospel. When you give someone the gospel, you are giving them the thing that they need more than anything else. More than anything than you can possibly imagine. To give people the gospel that do not have the gospel, the word of God calls that help, real help. Now, for hundreds of years, that's exactly what the church has meant when it's used the word mission. Okay? It's been, it's, it's, it's been used in this way uh, for so long that it was almost taken for granted. When you said mission, that's what you meant. Getting people the gospel that do not have the gospel. Not so any longer. Not so any longer. Recently, we're being told all across our culture through a representation of the social gospel that merely giving someone the gospel is no help at all. That's not any, you're not giving real help at all. And the only thing, okay, the only thing that I want to point out from this text is this text says the exact opposite. Real help is giving someone the gospel. And, and, and this is really important for us to understand. What, what do people need most? What do, what do human beings need more than anything else? And I don't mean to downplay uh, all kinds of other needs all across planet Earth. One of the phrases that we've used often at Grace Community Church is a phrase coined by John Piper. John Piper says, we care about all suffering. And then he says, especially eternal suffering. Do you have that grid? Do you have a grid that human beings have one specific need that they need more than anything else that you could possibly imagine combined? They have a need to be saved from their sins. They have a need for God's wrath that abides on them to be turned away from them. They need salvation from sin. And guess how they're going to get it? The only way that they're going to get it. They will never get it by good deeds done among the nations. You need to know that. No one will ever be saved by your good deeds. Yes, the Word of God commands us to good works, to good deeds done in the name of Jesus. No one will pass from death to life because of your good deeds. Your good deeds, my good deeds, they are not the power of the gospel unto salvation. But this message of Jesus is real help, real help, the most needed help, the most loving thing that you could do to any human being on planet Earth is tell them the good news about Jesus. Come over to Macedonia and help us. And they concluded that God had called them to preach the gospel. Beginning in verse 11, we see the, the story zone in on one specific individual. They go to Macedonia, leading city of Macedonia, and we meet this lady named Lydia. And the Bible tells us several things about her. The first thing it tells us, it sketches out a picture of a successful woman. Successful in a worldly sense. She's very successful. Look at verse 14. Two things. Tells us that she's from Thyatira. 
And it tells us that she was a seller of purple goods. Now, one of the things that we know about Thyatira is it's a city famous for dyes, like a modern uh, textile city. It's famous for its dyes. And specifically, these purple goods that Lydia is said to be selling, these, that purple dye is, is a luxury item. It's a very expensive thing in the Roman Empire. So the dye itself is expensive, and all the clothes that they dye with it are expensive. And so, putting this together, we, we get a picture of a woman, and she's basically a luxury merchant. She's, she, she's kind of selling like ancient diamonds, ancient jewels. She's selling high-end merchandise, and she's living abroad. She's not in her hometown. She's from Thyatira. She's doing business in Philippi. Another thing that we can take away, still sketches out her success. She's pictured as a woman of wealth. She's pictured as the head of her household. She's the one providing for her house. And almost certainly this means that she's either widowed or divorced in, in, in this specific uh, cultural context. So we have most likely a single woman with enough money to provide for her own household. And even with a house big enough to call at least four missionaries and take care of four missionaries and her entire household. And so in a lot of ways, she's sketched out to be very successful in a worldly sense. And, and, and there's, there is a way that we can say she's, she's, she's loaded. She's, she's successful. She's got a lot of money. She's got a, a nice house. She's, she's taking care of herself and able to take care of others. And that's important to us. Because as we look through God's word about the warnings that God's word gives about money and riches, we find that people like this are, are unlikely candidates for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unlikely candidates. The rich, by and large, do not feel their need as acutely as the poor. By and large. That's a generalization that's definitely not true in her life. So this doesn't apply to every individual. Okay? We have a lady, the first convert in Europe, that if you were to sketch out who the Holy Spirit would rest upon and open her heart, this would probably not have been your first guess. A wealthy, independent, successful lady. And by this we can learn that we don't, we don't discriminate for God the Holy Spirit. We don't make decisions in our missionary endeavors, in our disciple-making endeavors. We don't decide who the Holy Spirit is likely to work in and who the Holy Spirit is not likely to work in. We give the gospel to all. And the Spirit is showing His willingness and His ability even to open the heart of unlikely uh, 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 women like Lydia. Like Lydia. One other thing that's mentioned to us is she's a religious woman. Verse 13 tells us that she's praying on the Sabbath with another group of Jewish, with a group of Jewish women. And then verse 14 tells us that she is a worshiper of God. And what that means is that she at least has some working knowledge of the God of Israel. She at least has some working knowledge of the Word of God, the Scriptures that God gave to Israel. She's not completely 
in the dark about her knowledge of the promised Messiah. In fact, she's acquainted, at least to some degree, with the sacred writings. 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us that these sacred writings are able to make one wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus. So she's had some exposure to, to these God-breathed writings that testify to faith in Jesus Christ. To the promises that God has made to Israel. And yet we see that Luke dials in on her deepest need. Okay? Her deepest need. Lydia had a problem that ran deeper than her lack of knowledge. And we need to understand that we have that same problem. Okay? In our depravity, it's worse. We're in worse shape than just we don't know the right things. And therefore, somebody needs to come and tell us the truth about Jesus. And then everything will be fine. We do have a knowledge problem. Some people do not know the gospel. And they need to have that knowledge delivered to them. Through the word of God. Through missionaries. Through faithful gospel preaching. But there is a problem that runs deeper than knowledge. And she had it. Lydia had an inward hostility that only the Holy Spirit could overcome. She had it, and every human being outside, apart from Jesus Christ, has this same inability, this inner hostility. The problem goes deeper than just us not knowing the right information. We recall at the right information. We're hostile when we receive the right information. By nature, we're children of wrath. Listen to this text in Romans chapter 8, verse 7. says this. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. A mind that is in the flesh, not only will it not submit, to God's law. It cannot submit to God's demands, to God's law. Brothers and sisters, this includes that demand for all men everywhere to repent. You cannot do that unless this hostility is overcome in your life. And listen, the only person that can do it is God, the Holy Spirit. We need a new heart. We need a new heart. And this is exactly what we see the Spirit of God do in Lydia's life. In verse 14, how does the Spirit overcome this hostility? We have this beautiful phrase in verse 14. As she's hearing that gospel, it says this, The Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened, opened her heart. And so I want you to think about this. Think about being that missionary. And standing before a group of women that have at least some degree of the knowledge of the God of Israel. And you begin to announce the good news about Jesus. And you look across that crowd and you see on this one, this one's falling asleep. You see on this one over here. And, and she's really angry about what you're saying. She doesn't like what you're saying about Jesus being God and exalted to the right hand of God. And then you look to this one right here and she's bored out of her mind. She gives 
a rip about what you're saying about Jesus. And then your eyes land on this one named Lydia. And all of her attention has been summoned. She's hanging on every word that you say. Her heart has been opened to pay attention to the words that you're saying. And then ask yourself, what's the difference? And all of those ladies. And the Bible tells us that it's God the Holy Spirit that's working in her heart to make that gospel effective. This is the sovereign work of the Spirit of God. And this is exactly what the Old Testament promises that God would do. A deep work in the heart of human beings. Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You need a new heart. If you could repent and believe the gospel with your old heart, with your heart of stone, you would not need a new heart. You need a new heart. You need a, a living heart, a heart of flesh. You need your heart opened up to pay attention to the things of Jesus. And only the Holy Spirit can do this. Only the Holy Spirit can do this. This is why it's glorious news that the third person of the Trinity has been delivered into the hands of the great mediator, the one who has died for our sins, risen from the dead, that King Jesus is able to pour out that Spirit anytime, anywhere, anybody, any people group, any age. No boundaries can keep Him out. He's able to open up human hearts and cause them to pay attention to the Gospel. Sovereign salvation. Now, as we close, I want to remind every Christian in the room, every disciple of Jesus, that the Spirit of Jesus has done this same work, same thing that he did to Lydia, he's done it to every single one of us. And the reason we know that is we would never believe the gospel otherwise. And some of us struggle with, you know, some, some bad thoughts sometimes about I don't have this, you know, really dramatic conversion. I don't have this really dramatic conversion story of doing all this sin for all these years. And, and my story is just, I believed the gospel when I was a little girl. And God saved my soul. And I want you to think about this. Think about the glory of God saved me when I was a little girl. God tore open my heart. God caused me to pay attention to the gospel of Jesus Christ. God ripped out my heart of stone and gave me a heart of flesh. No such thing as a boring Christian. No such thing as a boring testimony. Every single work of regeneration bears witness to the work of the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3 says this. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Think about that this morning. Now we're not talking about just saying lip service to King Jesus. You can put that on a tape recorder and Jesus is Lord. No one can say it and mean it. No one can say it with sincerity apart from the Spirit of God. Everyone who says it with sincerity, Jesus is King. Jesus is Lord. You are a walking miracle. You have been operated on by the triune God. 
Your heart of stone has been pulled out and you have been given a heart of flesh, a living heart. You've been given the life of God in the soul of man. You've been born again by God, the Holy Spirit, walking miracle. You are a recipient of Trinitarian salvation. Trinitarian salvation chosen by God the Father before time began. Paid for by God the Son on the bloody cross of Jesus Christ and born again from the dead by God the Holy Spirit. New heart, new mind, eternal life forever. Salvation belongs to the triune God, to our triune God. And I want us to leave here today with a desire to see God the Holy Spirit magnified in these same ways. And I want to lead us in prayer and ask God to move, move in our midst. Let's pray. Lord, coming through this book of Acts, God, many times and in many ways, you've encouraged us. And we find ourselves coming back to these very similar themes of the mission of Jesus being finished. And your zeal to see your name glorified among the nations. And Lord, we want to pause today as a family and as a local church. And we want to ask you to work in our midst in mighty power in this specific area. Lord, we ask you to fill this church with the spirit that exalts Jesus. God, we confess to you, Lord, that we could labor as a local church for decades. But there will never be a missionary sent out from this church, Lord, unless you do it. We are unable to do this in and of ourselves, God. You're the Lord of the harvest. And so we ask you today that you would send out laborers into the harvest. Be pleased to use this local church in this way, Lord, that there would be steadily and consistently some in our midst that that compulsion, that ambition that we read about today Cause it to fall upon them, Lord. Fill them with an unquenchable desire to preach Jesus Christ where He is not named. Not one of us in this room are sufficient for such a task, but make them sufficient, Holy Spirit. Fill them with faith and send them out to magnify the name of Jesus among the nations. God, we pray that you would magnify the work of the Holy Spirit in Grace Community Church as it relates to conversion. Lord, we can preach the word and attempt to make disciples until we're old and gray-haired, Lord. But your word says that unless you build this house, we who build it, we labor in vain. And so we ask for your help, Lord. Make our labor for you effective. Cause us to abound more and more in our work for you, our faithfulness towards you, Lord Jesus. And God, we ask for that gift to be manifested all across this church and in every way that you would be pleased to do it, that you would allow souls to be saved, hearts to be opened, new life to be granted. Lord, we ask for the new birth, God. 
Many times we prayed this, Lord. We don't just want to grow by Christians being added to this church. We want to see new believers. We want to see you exalted in this city. We want to see you raise those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, Lord. And we ask you to do it not to us, God. We ask you to do it to glorify the name of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.